Konnichiwa. Welcome to the Board Game Dojo. My name is Eric. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Whether it's your first time listening, you listen to every episode, or somewhere in between, we sincerely, sincerely, sincerely appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to our little podcast. Oh man, I am in such a good mood today with more like a relieved feeling like I have the world that has lifted off my shoulders because I got my law school applications in last week and anybody who knows about the law school admissions process in the US like uh, it's like a 6 month to a 1 year process getting the tests done getting the essays written for each different school because of course every school has a different essay that you have to write about just a little bit so it's like oh man I applied to like 12 or 13 different schools so I had quite a few essays I had to write but now those are all done and now I get to wait so probably like eight to 12 weeks for a response for this. So hopefully that all goes well. But in the meantime, we can talk about some games and we have some games today that I think are a little bit different than we usually talk about on this podcast. First, we will have a game that tries to combine 18xx games and trick-taking called City Tricks. We will then talk about an economic stock game from Freeman Frieza called Black Friday. And finally, we will talk about a party game that was quite the darling at Essen as a code names killer called Hard to Get. I don't think I've made you wait long enough since the previous review episode, so let's just get it started right away with City Tricks, a game that is for people that like train games and trick-taking games. Now, it actually accomplishes this goal by trying to kind of par down both of these genres into its fundamental cores, and it progresses in rounds. So in kind of the first round of it, you will do trick taking, which is a very, very simple trick taking game where everybody plays a card to the table, the highest value wins the trick. But instead of kind of taking all the cards, the player who wins the trick will get the first choice of the cards that were played to the trick. And then the second highest card gets second choice and so on, except for until you get to the player who played the lowest value to the table. Upon setup, you'll actually have every player randomly have to give some cards and then there will be some side piles that you will create. And whoever comes in last will, instead of picking a card that was played to the trick, they will pick one of the cards to these side piles, which sometimes you definitely want. Instead, that last card that wasn't picked, the player who won the trick will get a second card. They will get that last remaining card. When you pick a card, you can either choose to put it into your network of cards or your personal player pile. And this is important because there are different kinds of cards. So for example, there are the train cards that you definitely want in your networks because that's going to be how you travel to different cities. There's also those different city cards that you definitely want to put in your network so your trains have somewhere to go and you can gain money and increase that value of your company. There's also coin cards and stock cards that you want to put into your personal player pile, but I will get to that a little bit later. This kind of trick-taking phase progresses and keeps going until everybody's out of cards, and then you will proceed to the operating phase in which you'll actually run your trades. This will generate the income that you will be able to use here in a sec, but also increase your value of your company. Once that's done, then you'll actually go to the stock round. And this is where you will actually sell and purchase shares, and it's where those stock and coin cards from earlier come in handy. 
Something important to take note is that your personal player pile is secret to everyone. You never have to show other people what you have. But here is where you're actually going to use those cards because in order to buy stock in a company, you actually have to have a stock card in that company. So let's say I have one stock card in Germany. I can buy one stock card, but only one stock card. I would need a second one in order to buy a second stock in the German railway system. But I can make those stocks cheaper to buy for me if I have those coin cards. The coins will have different values on them, and based on that, that is how much of a discount that you have. So say I have a nine coin, and right now the value is at 60, well that means I can actually buy it at 51. You don't have to do this, but it is usually a good option to do as such. Once everybody is done with this stage, you will then prepare for the next round and do everything over again, starting with the trick-taking phase. You'll play a set number of rounds and whoever has the most money at the end of the game wins. This is such an interesting game to talk about because man, what a goal to actually have. Like, okay, I want to put an 18xx game and a trick-taking game together. Those two genres have no business being together and yet somehow they accomplished it. Like honestly, the two genres work together seamlessly in this game. I cannot imagine this game working as well as this with pretty much any other combination. The trick-taking works perfectly well with the 18xx mechanisms and the 18xx kind of foundation works really well with the trick-taking mechanism. It works so cool. And I was really pleasantly surprised at just how well it accomplished this goal that I really didn't think was going to actually be that good. I should put down the warning that I played a prototype of this, so I really can't talk about the art as such. I don't think it was at least the finalized art or anything, so I can't really talk about that. But when you hear you're playing a prototype and it's like, okay, we're doing this experimental thing where we're combining these two genres, I was not really expecting much, but I was quite pleasantly surprised. It can also be noted that I am really not the target audience for this game. It is for people who like trains and trick-taking. They keep saying that on their page. And yet, before this game, I had never played an 18xx game or a train game. In fact, I didn't play an 18xx game until like a week after playing this game. So I really had no like background going on here. But I still found it to be a good game. But... At the same time, that actually begs the question as to who this is actually for, which I think in this game is a much more interesting and deeper question than I'm really used to. Because usually when we talk about games on this podcast, we're talking about these games that are more geared towards the general public. I would say, sure, maybe this game is geared towards maybe hobbyist trick takers, but there's still a lot of people out there. This one is kind of much more asking you the question of, okay, if we had a circle of people that represent, okay, these are the people who like 18xx games, and we had another circle that was like, okay, here are the people who like trick-taking games quite a bit. Okay, well, if those two circles overlap, well, then this is an easy recommend for you. Go, I don't even know what you're still doing here. Go buy this game. And if those circles are really far away from each other, like you're somebody who really likes trick takers but doesn't like 18xx or vice versa, well then guess what? You're not going to be buying this game. But the hard question and the thing that you have to think about is if those circles are, well, in unknown positions or maybe overlap just a little bit, what if you're somebody who likes 18xx games but wants to try out 
trick-taking or vice versa. You're somebody who likes trick-taking and wants to try out an 18xx game, even though you've never played it. So I hope I can lend my perspective a little bit here by saying while I found the game is good, I didn't really enjoy my play of it. I found myself more appreciating it than wanting to play it again. And I think some of that has to do with the fact of I was playing with other people who are more experienced with 18xx. Some of them have played lots of them, some of them just one or two, but they all had more 18xx experience than me. And so while I had had maybe more experience than them in trick-taking, it didn't really do me any good because I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. I could kind of guess that, okay, I want that card, I think, so I'm going to maybe purposely lose this trick, or maybe I want to win this trick because I need that thing, but I really didn't get the strategy from round to round because I didn't have that experience. And I have a feeling that it's going to be the same going the other way, where if you know what you're wanting to do because you have lots of experience with 18xx, but maybe no experience in trick-taking, you're like probably going to get frustrated because you're going to know, okay, I need this for my network. I need this for stocks, but I don't know how to get them. I don't know how to manipulate my hand so that I can get the cards I need to make my network maximized. And so it comes down to this weird thing where I think usually we say we recommend a game for this many people except this. It's kind of like uh, we did on Lambdas where we're like, oh, this game is super good. We really, really like it except for this one kind of person. I almost feel like City Tricks is the opposite of that, where this game is a good game that is very good for people that overlap on 18xx games and trick-taking games. It is also a good possibility to work if you at least have some experience in both of those genres, enough that you know what you kind of need to do or a general strategy on both. Maybe you're somebody who likes 18xx games and you recently found out about the crew and you started playing that and you were like, oh yeah, I think I like this trick-taking thing a little bit. I want to try a little bit more of that. Okay. Cool. Now you at least know some foundations of trick-taking that can get you somewhere. Or vice versa, maybe you're somebody who is maybe really likes trick-taking games and maybe you have under your belt a heavy economic game or a stock market games or a, what would be the best, I guess, an 18xx game, and then you have something to go on. If you go into it like somebody like me where I didn't have any experience going in with 18xx games, well, I could just appreciate it. And I'm not sure that at 40 euros plus the import fee that it's going to be worth it at that price. But in the very least, in my case, I can kind of look back and go, wow, I cannot believe that they pulled that off. Didn't expect it to be as good as it was. It is a good game. If you are somebody that is looking for something like this, then I definitely recommend it. And that was City Tricks designed by Filippo Frattarulo and published by Game E. Going from 18xx games to economic games, let's talk about Black Friday, which I actually learned right before this review. It's actually a re-implementation of a 2010 game of the same name, but I haven't played that one, so I can't really compare it. There's a lot of little moving parts in here, but I hope by giving you a general overview of the game, you can kind of get the gist of what is going on. So on your turn, you have a couple of different options you can do. The most simplest one is to buy or sell a piece of gold, and this is on the track on the left. The other option is to buy or sell a stock. You'll look at the top of the board and what stocks are available, and you can choose one of those stocks to buy. When you buy that stock, you will, after you buy it, move the value up and how expensive that stock is to buy from now on, but you'll also put a piece into this kind of line down at the bottom of the board. 
When that line fills up with three of the same color stock, then that stock again moves up in value. Now, the other thing you can do is sell stocks. And when you are selling stocks, you'll then move the value of that stock down. And you'll also place a token on the sell line on the bottom of the board. Once that fills up, then it's time for a drawing. And this is where a lot of the stock market movement is going to happen. Because at the beginning of the game, what normally happens is you have these stocks that are moving upwards and getting more and more valuable and more and more expensive to buy. But as the game progresses, you'll actually start putting in these black tokens that not only make it harder for these stocks to move upwards, they can actually cause stocks to go down and really plummet. And so a lot of this game rests on your prediction and the probabilities of what you're going to draw from this bag. What are the chances that blue continues to rise or blue is drawn and it plummets in value? And that's really where you get a lot of the stock market variation variation of it. When are you buying the right stocks and making it more expensive that other people can't buy it and then pulling out so that you can make as much money as possible and everybody else is going to be left holding the bag. The game is over once gold reaches the top of its value chart and whoever has the most value at the end of the game wins. Now, something that is a little bit about me when I'm playing games in my newest game group is learning this about me a lot, is that the first and second time I usually play a game, of course, like, I'm always trying to win, but I'm usually, like, tinkering with different mechanisms and seeing what everybody else does and trying to do something different. When everybody else is zigging, I'm trying to zag, and partly it's because I just want to see everything the game has to offer. If everybody's just using the same mechanisms, well, I want to use a different mechanism to see how it works out. And so the first time that I actually played this game, everybody was very concentrated on the stock market aspect of it. And so I was like, okay, you all have fun with that area of the game. I'm going to use it a little bit, but I'm only really going to use it so that I can buy gold. And that was basically my entire strategy was doing the very consistent gold that can only go up and become more expensive and never down. And so, of course, I wasn't getting the highs that the stock market was doing, but I was not losing money as much as everybody else was either. And slowly but surely, as we got through the game, other people started being like, actually, I think gold is probably the better investment. And that started to raise that gold token up faster and faster and started speeding up towards the end of the game, which was probably pretty good because I already felt like the game was going on a titch too long. But I ended up winning because of that. I actually only won by $7. And I only won, really, because the person who was $7 behind me in that last draw from the bag, well, the value of one of their stocks went down. Just enough for me to have a bit more value in what I had. And that kind of brings me to my next point that I think that there's always a little bit of this in these stock market games, but there's quite a bit of luck involved here. And it's really prevalent here and very noticeable because of the drawback. There are, of course, these probabilities that you can do, and maybe if you're better at math, you can even do them in your head. Okay, I think there's like three blues in there and seven whites. So odds are that there's going to be whites drawn from the bag this time right? But as it turns out, we draw two tokens and they're both blue. That's just going to happen sometimes. And there's nothing you can really do about it. I don't really have that much of a problem with that out of the gate. And 
it's definitely front and center, so that's clearly one of the points of this game. But it is kind of interesting, and I guess interesting is probably a nice word. I think people are going to have problems with just how swingy the stocks can be because it's not always like this thing where it's like going from 11 to 13 or 11 to 21 sometimes they're going something like 61 value to 20 i mean an absolute plummet which i guess yeah it does happen in the stock market but i think it's a little bit more rare in the economic games that at least i have played the worst case scenario is maybe it moves from 60 to 50 or 60 to 40 not 60 to 20 and suddenly everything that i have in my hand is almost worthless what have i been doing for the past half an hour and so I think that that might cause some hiccups for some people that are looking at this game. But for me, it wasn't too much of a problem. Actually, I quite enjoyed my play of it. I thought it was fun and I thought it was fun at multiple player counts too, which is quite a nice surprise in this economic genre. The first time I played it, it was at five and I enjoyed it. I think I personally prefer it at three and four. I thought five was just a bit too much. But again, I really did enjoy it. But here's the actual thing is for the second time today, I am saying I had fun playing the game. I had a good time playing the game and yet I don't think I ever want to buy it. And it almost feels like that's a bit of growth in my board gaming journey, probably more than anything else where I used to be, if I played a fun game, especially if I was playing it at like a board game meetup and somebody introduced it to me, if I had fun playing that game, I would immediately go on Amazon or whatever board game store I had near me and go, okay, I want to have this in my collection. But this was one of those games where every time I've played it, I'm like, I enjoyed myself, I had fun, and yet I am okay with not owning this at all. There's something about it that for... The fact that I enjoy it, there's not something grabbing me that would make me want to take it off of the shelf. I see a bunch of economic games that, yes, aren't stock market games on the shelf that I have right in front of me as I record this podcast, but there's a hook to it, a sales pitch to it that makes me want to go, oh, yes, I want to play that today. I can see modern art, which, hey, I'm thinking back to all the times I've gaveled and sold my friends some, of course, amazing art. I'm thinking of Stockpile with its insider trading or the estate with its mean negotiations. These games, when I see them, I'm like, I want to have that experience because it has that hook that I want to play and relive and make a new memory of. And Black Friday, while it's enjoyable, it just doesn't have something that's really grabbing me and I guess it's almost an unfair thing because it is a good game there are solid mechanisms here there's a lot of fun to be had in this box and and yet I have so much choice when I go into my friendly local game store there's so many options for me to choose that I think I'm just getting to the point where if I want a game to buy, it needs to have that something special. And this one, between the fact that it has a rule book that isn't the best, that if I need to reread it, which I probably will, it's going to take me a bit to understand what's going on. And the fact that I think there are just a lot of better, excellent economic games out there. While I can say that Black Friday is good and you should take a look at it to see if it's for you, I don't think it's worth buying. But at least it's the best Freeman Frieza game that I've played so far, although I've only played Power Grid 
and Friday so far. Maybe I just made some enemies of some Feedman Frieza fans. But anyway, that is Black Friday, the 2023 version designed by Friedman Frieza. The art is by Hami Harald Lisk in Studio Matigo, and the publisher is by 2F Spiel. What a weird return to a review episode this has been. Two games that I say are good, and yet a majority of people I'm saying shouldn't buy it? What a weird return to a review episode. But let's see how this last game is a party game that is supposed to be a codenames killer called Hard to Get. In Hard to Get, one player will be the game master and everybody else will be working together. This is a cooperative game, so everybody is going to win or everybody is going to lose. You will set up a grid of cards in front of you and only the game master will know which one of those cards is the secret word. They will then draw cards from a separate pile that will have two sides to it, and these might be things that are similar or things that are very different. Like for example, one side of the card might be apple and the other side might be onion. And then they need to show that card to everybody at the table and then pick one of those two words that they think is most similar to the secret word card. Then everybody else at the table needs to remove any cards from that grid in front of them that they think, okay, this must not be the secret word. They have to at least eliminate one card per round, and you only have five total rounds to guess the secret word. And this is done by eliminating all of the words in the grid except for the secret word. Simply put, after five rounds, if you get the secret word right, then you win. But if at any point the players remove the secret word card, then everybody loses. That's seriously it. That is all the rules of the game. And so I thought that this was interesting because while I didn't get to play it at Essed, I actually ended up buying it after watching some people play it. I thought it would be a pretty interesting game and a kind of fun game to bring to parties, especially with people who are new to gaming. And then actually it was after day one of Essen that it actually started getting buzz. What if this is finally the game that kills off codenames? which seems to be a game that people are just really excited about killing off because I think it's mostly like the modern classic thing that everybody is playing. It's kind of like Splendor where everybody's always trying to kill off Splendor, which I actually, I personally hope happens because I don't really like Splendor very much. But in this instance, the whole pitch of the game is that it is supposed to be easier than codenames to A, explain the rules to, but also to play. And this comes down to the fact that one critique of codenames is that if you have somebody who is the game master for your team that can't really come up with very good clues while the other person can, well, it's not going to be as fun for your team. For example, if you're only able to come up with a um, color one card and the other player is like, oh, I can probably connect animal four cards, then your team is probably going to lose. And what happens if your person actually just can't think of anything and they take a minute of just sitting there like, um, how do I connect all of these cards? What word can I possibly do here? So I do kind of get why this is supposed to solve that problem. Because, hey, you need to draw a card and then you only have two choices. The game master has to choose one of those two choices. Now, of course, not all those are going to be good, Actually, a lot of the time, they're going to be pretty bad and unhelpful, but hey, you don't have that kind of paralysis of trying to come up with the clue. So it's supposed to be a lot simpler. And so it kind of got a lot of buzz and a lot of people bringing it back after Essen. 
Now, they named this game hard to get, and I guess they really weren't lying because of all the times we have played this game, we have yet to win a game. This game is so difficult to win. Holy smokes. And I almost wonder how that's going to actually play with people who are new to board games and party games, because generally speaking, I think that there are a lot of people who are okay with losing, but it can be a bit demotivating for people who are not really used to that kind of game. It doesn't feel great to always be losing. Of course, people who are in the hobbyist games, I think are a bit more used to it, but it still doesn't make it feel any better. And so we actually ended up doing a bit of an experiment with this game. Our participants were not aware that we were actually doing this study. Sorry to them. Should have got informed consent. But we kind of set our groups into three different game groups. One game group were people who were brand new to board games and not really played code names. The second group were people who had a little bit of gaming experience and had played code names. And then the last group were people who were well experienced with code names as a game, had played it quite a bit. And something weird kind of happened in our experiment because we really expected that Hard to Get would be the best for new people to the board gaming genre or maybe the somewhat experienced groups, whereas the, those who had played a lot of code names would probably prefer code names. It was just, it's kind of their lifestyle game, if you will. But in fact, the opposite happened. The people who were newest to board games had the worst experience playing hard to get. They liked this game the least. And I think it's partly because of what I mentioned earlier, which was that it was just so difficult to win that they felt like I they weren't really sure what they were supposed to do. What was a good clue? What were they supposed to eliminate? And while they could try to get better, it was so difficult that even once they were starting to get better, they were still losing and they felt a bit demotivated. Every person in this game group, when I asked, do you want me to bring this back next time? We can try again next time. They said, mm, I think I'm pretty good. Let's try something else. The somewhat experienced group kind of was like, you know what? I think I prefer code names still, but both games are fun in that sense. Like if you want to bring it back, I would definitely play it again. And then the third group, which was the ones who had tons of experience with code names, were the most likely to say that they wanted a copy to buy. In fact, I actually gave my copy to one of the people in that group because they were like, oh, we've played so much code names and we're always ready for kind of an alternative, something that feels kind of like code names, but adjacent to it to give us a little bit of a break, something a little bit different to play on a game night. And this kind of fills that gap, which is kind of an interesting point. I think hard to get is probably most kind of recommended for people who really played the heck out of their copy of Codenames and are just ready to move on to the next thing. I think that even though there is that kind of selling point of, hey, giving clues is simpler, simpler isn't always better. I think where people can kind of have fun making fun of their partner for giving bad clues in code names, or at least chalking up their defeat to whoever the game master is, it kind of gives people a psychological out. Instead of 
all losing together over and over again. There's also just this thing of because you really can't take this kind of individualization, this customization that if you are generally good at codenames, like I think I'm actually pretty decent at codenames at clue giving, but then my secret word for the game was Barack Obama and my two choices were apple or onion. And it's kind of like, how do I get these people who might not get the references that I know, how do I get them to get to Barack Obama with this card? And whereas codenames, yes, it's a little bit harder to have to come up with something on the spot. I can at least adjust it to the people who are on my team and the people who are at the table. I guess that is to say that I'm still on team code names. I think Hard to Get is a good game. We put it on our games to bring to the holidays for a reason. I think it's going to be a hit for a lot of people. I just don't think that it is going to be the code names killer as was kind of hyped up after Essen, but ultimately they are both good games. I would take a look at them and see which one is better for your group because I don't think you can make a wrong decision either way. And that is hard to get. Designed by Mads Emil Christensen, art by Mads Berg, and published by Gameplay Publishing. Well, that's going to do it for today. I think as we play more and more games, it is getting harder and harder to parse out like a strong recommend or a strong not recommend. There's so much gray area like in these games. I think all three of these games are actually good games that we covered today. And it's just like, oh, who is this for? Who is this not for? It feels really bad being a reviewer who's just kind of saying like all three of these games are good, but there's so many people that maybe I don't recommend this for. Oh, it's such a weird feeling. But let us know what you think. We're going to tweet about it and post on Instagram. And of course, you can let us know on the Discord if any of these games struck your interest. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane.